You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, Baltimore's Buried Treasure. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about extinct jobs. In particular, in the days before alarm clocks, you could actually pay someone to wake you up each morning. So what was the job title that was given to a person that was paid to wake people up? Was it one, a bell donger, two, a day starter, three, a knocker upper, four, a night chaser, or five, a rooster riser? Again, what was the name of the person employed to wake people up each morning? Was it one, a bell donger, two, a day starter, three, a knocker upper, four, a night chaser, or five, a rooster riser? As always, I'll let you ponder over these choices for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story titled, Baltimore's Buried Treasure. And this story caused me to have one of those, I wonder what the odds of that happening were, moments. That's because I started researching the story on found treasure in mid-January, and I had finally finished the last of my notes when I suddenly looked up at my computer and saw a pile of gold coins staring right back at me. Now, if you've been following the news recently, you're probably familiar with the story of a Northern California couple that found five cans filled with $27,000 in gold coins that was buried on their land. Experts have estimated that the sale of these rare coins could bring in an estimated $10 million at auction. So I was ready to toss all of my research into the garbage, but my wife convinced me that I have a much better story to tell. And as you'll soon find out, in this story there may have been a pot of gold, but it wasn't at the end of any rainbow, nor did a leprechaun bring the finders any luck. So let's zoom back to August 31st of 1934, which just happened to be a Friday, and see what was going on at 132 South Eden Street in Baltimore, Maryland. In the basement of this long-neglected three-story house, we find two teenage boys. They are 14-year-old Theodore Jones and 15-year-old Henry Grob. The two lads had just decided to start a new boys' club that they were calling the Rinky Dinky Doos. What a name, Rinky Dinky Doos. Dues in the club were set at five cents apiece, not that either of them had a single penny to contribute themselves. 
Back in a far corner of the cellar, the boys started digging a hole in the dirt floor, and that was to hide a cigar box that they intended to use to hold any dues that were collected by the club. You know, kind of wishful thinking. And their tools were crude. All they had was an axe, a long corn knife, and a flashlight. They chose a spot near a brick wall and started their excavation. They quickly hit a layer of oyster shell, of all things, and then at about one foot or 30 centimeters depth, the axe came down and suddenly something shiny just popped out of the ground. Theodore said, look, here's a medal. Henry took a quick look and replied, you're crazy. That's a $20 gold piece. Now for two boys that were living in poverty during the Great Depression, this was like hitting the jackpot. That's because $20 back in 1934 would be like finding $340 today. They wondered if there could be more gold beneath their feet. So the boys quickly dropped to their knees and they continued to dig and dig until they uncovered an old boot that had been split lengthwise and then wrapped around what appeared to be the corroded remnants of an old copper pot. The boys pulled the pot out of the ground and they placed it upon an old mattress that had been lying on the dirt floor of the cellar. Theodore then smashed the pot open and the unbelievable occurred. Thousands of gold coins just poured out of that old copper vessel. To divvy it up, each boy took half of the larger denomination coins, but there were just so many $1 gold coins that they didn't bother to count. They simply split it up by the handful. Now, Theodore lived upstairs, so getting his share of the coins home was no big deal. But Henry lived about one and a half blocks away at 227 South Caroline, so he was forced to fill his shoes with the gold and walk home barefoot. Their original plan was to take the coins to a local bank and cash them in. But Henry's brother-in-law, Paul, warned against doing this. That's because the United States had just come off of the gold standard and required that all gold currency be turned over to the government by May 1st of 1933. They were 16 months beyond that deadline, and anyone who possessed more than $100 worth of gold coins could be subject to a maximum fine of $10,000 and up to 10 years in prison. Now, there was an exception to the gold recall in that it allowed for gold coins, quote, having a recognized special value to collectors of rare and unusual coins. That's the end of the quote. And these coins were clearly very old, and Paul thought that they could be worth significantly more than the face value that a bank would give them for turning them in. So he suggested that they turn the hoard over to the police, and the boys agreed. So imagine this. Henry, Theodore, and Paul walk over to the Eastern Police Station, which is a few blocks away, and they tell Sergeant Harry R. Hill that they had over $7,000 in gold coins that they wanted to turn over to him. He must have thought that they were crazy, but that thought couldn't have lasted long because soon Hill, along with a couple of other officers, counted up the loot and placed $7,882 into their safe. But it turns out that the boys have been holding out, and that's because they didn't know if they could trust the police. The officers must have been in shock when the boys strolled in a couple of hours later with an additional $3,542 in gold coins. Adjusted for inflation, that $11,424 in total would be just shy of $200,000 today. 
Within a couple of days, the two boys were instant celebrities. When asked by the press what they intended to do with their sudden wealth, Henry stated that he wanted to purchase a house for his mother and then give her the rest of the fortune. Theodore planned to purchase a washing machine for his mom and then get himself a new suit. And like Henry, Theodore said that his mom could have the remainder. Now what kid would do that today? But the real question was, who owned the loot? Was it the property of the boys or the owners of the land? Or did it belong to another resident of the house or possibly someone, you know, who may have lived there years prior? As you'd expect, once the news spread of this incredible find, a large number of people came forward to claim the hoard. There was only one solution. Yes, this was a job for Superman. But uh, wait, he wasn't available at that moment, so ownership of the gold had to be decided by the next best thing. That was a court of law. And that meant that the boys needed to get a lawyer. And as you know, lawyers don't come cheap. They hired attorney Henry O. Levin in exchange for one-third of anything that the court awarded them. A 90-day window was given for any party to come forward and stake their claim for the pot of gold. A number were almost immediately out of the running, and that's because their claims were either fraudulent or just too far-fetched. At the end of the 90-day period, 10 parties had joined in the suit, but that was quickly whittled down to four by the judge. So here's a quick summary of who was involved. First and most obvious were the two boys, that's Henry Grob and Theodore Jones, who were represented by Henry O'Levin. Second were the landowners. They were two elderly sisters named Elizabeth French and Mary Pillar Boyd Finley. Oddly, they only owned the land and not the house built upon it. The building was owned by Benjamin Callis, who paid a monthly land rent to the sisters. Now, Callis was not part of the suit because he had only recently purchased the house after the previous owners had passed away and the land rent payments had ceased. Next was the family of Harry Chenvin. He had occupied one of the six apartments in the building and had died 12 days prior to the discovery of the gold. Harry had been a very successful jeweler until he went off his rocker back in 1915 and ended up in a sanitarium. He had supposedly lost everything at the time, but there were those rumors that he still had a large fortune that was stashed away somewhere. Hmm, could that be it? And the last party to the lawsuit was me. I just wanted the money and I had no reason to really claim it. Just pure greed. Okay, I wasn't alive then. Actually, the last party were descendants of the late Andrew Salisbury. He was an incredibly wealthy man who had owned the home at 132 South Eden from June of 1865 until his sudden death on November 28th of 1873. And he was known to have handed out gold coins as gifts to both his staff and to his family. So there you have it, the four players in the suit. Who do you think should have been rewarded with the pot of gold? Was it the boys because they found it? Or the two sisters because they owned the land that the gold was found on? Or did it belong to the former jeweler who may have hidden his fortune in the basement? Or did it belong to the wealthy homeowner who had suddenly died? Now before I continue, I must admit that I've always assumed that anything found on land that I own was my property. But it turns out that's not always the case. 
There are what are known as treasure trove laws, and these vary greatly from state to state and country to country. In most cases, if someone finds a stash of valuables on your land and you can't prove that they were trespassing on your land, or you can't prove that you really own the treasure, it belongs to the finder. It was left to Judge Eugene O'Dunn to figure this one out. He quickly ruled out the family of Harry Chenvin. That's because it was clear that the pot of gold had been buried many years prior, uh, with the newest coin being dated 1856. Since Chenvin was living in Russia until 1908, and the family had no proof that he really did have a secret stash of gold, they were dropped from the case. In February of 1935, O'Dunn handed down his decision on the Salisbury claim. He felt that it was certainly plausible that Andrew Salisbury had buried the gold. You know, after all, he was a wealthy man who had lived in the house, you know, around the time that the coins may have been hidden. But the family could offer no proof of ownership. Their argument was purely circumstantial, so the judge ruled against them also. So it was down to either the two sisters or the two boys being awarded ownership. Since Maryland did not have a treasure trove law at the time, the judge had to make his decision based on previous court rulings. This really boiled down to answering just one simple question. Had the boys trespassed or not? Now there had been a door in the basement that sealed off the room in which the gold was found, but there was conflicting testimony as to whether the door was locked or it was unlocked when the boys made their discovery. On February 16th of 1935, O'Dunn issued his ruling. Quote, I award the whole contents of the copper pot of some $11,427 face value to the infant defendants as finders of the treasure trove. That's the end of the quote. In other words, what he was saying, finders keepers, losers weepers. Appeals to the ruling were immediately filed by the two women and the descendants of Andrew Salisbury, but all parties agreed that the gold could be sold in the meantime. On May 2nd of 1935, 3,558 gold coins were sold in an auction that was held at the Lord Baltimore Hotel. Various estimates had valued the hoard at between $25,000 and $30,000, but the sale fell far short of the predictions, bringing in just under $20,000 in total. Now that would be about $340,000 in today's money, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at, so they did pretty well. Two months later, on July 2nd, the Maryland Court of Appeals issued a split decision. The court was equally divided 4-4, to four, which meant that O'Dunn's opinion was not overturned. The money belonged to the boys. But there was one catch. O'Dunn had specified in his original decision that neither boy would get one single cent until each turned 21 years of age. For two families on public assistance, that would mean even more years of struggling. Yet somehow both families started acquiring things that only a decent income could afford. The Jones family purchased a car. The Grobs not only purchased a car, but new furniture, and they were looking to buy a house in a better neighborhood. You know, one had to wonder where are they getting the money to make these purchases from? You know, could it be better jobs, you know, loans against future income, or what? The answer to this question came on September 2nd of 1935. That's when Theodore's family had gone to look at a house that they were interested in buying. When they returned home around 10 p.m. that evening, 
they discovered that their apartment had been robbed. Theodore's stepdad, a guy named Philip A. Rummel, went to the police and reported the robbery. He claimed that a trunk had been broken into and $3,100 in cash and $500 worth of gold coins had been stolen. When asked where all his money came from, he explained that he had saved it up over his lifetime of hard work. But the police weren't buying his story. That's because this was a guy who never found steady work and had no way of amassing such a fortune. That's when he admitted that the boys had found a second pot of gold coins in the basement of that house the previous June. Now, just how much did they find? Well, no one knows for sure because a lot of it had been sold off, but they claimed it was about $10,000. The police suspected that there never was a second pot of gold and that the boys had simply not turned over everything that they had originally found. As soon as the news broke about the supposed second fine, the whole thing ended right back up in court again. Lawyers for the sisters wanted the first case reopened, you know, since they felt that the boys had been fraudulent in their testimony. And Henry O'Levin, the boy's lawyer, also cried foul, claiming that he was being gypped out of his one-third share of the gold. And if ownership of the first pot was being questioned once again, then which party was entitled to the second treasure? And back to court is where they all went. On October 2nd of 1935, once again, Judge O'Dunn issued his ruling. Lacking any evidence to prove otherwise, he concluded that there really was a second fine by the boys in that basement. As a result, he found no reason to overturn his original decision. As you can probably guess, the two sisters appealed O'Dunn's ruling. And once again, the appellate court upheld the lower court's decision. The question of who owned the first pot of gold was now finally settled. So was it all over? Of course not. The sisters then filed a new suit claiming ownership of the second pot. Then, in December of 1937, Judge Samuel K. Dennis ruled that there was no significant difference between the two gold discoveries, and he awarded ownership of the second pot of gold to the two boys. After more than three months of courtroom battles, the legal fight was all over. But it wasn't all good news, and that's because Henry had lost his life to pneumonia four months earlier. At the time, he had been working at the Panzer Packing Company as a mayonnaise worker, earning just $16 per week. Henry's mom, Ruth, was awarded his share of the fortune. After deducting for court fees, Levin's share of the fortune, paying the inheritance tax, and covering the cost of Henry's funeral, she was given a check for $3,601.70 on April 11th of 1938. As for Theodore Jones, he married in 1938 using his birth name of Theodore Crick Signs. He received a check for approximately $5,000 in May of 1939. He was 19 years old. Now, if you recall, I mentioned that the two boys couldn't receive the money until they turned 21. It turns out that Theodore had always lied about his age and added on two years. So even though he was 19, the court thought he was 21. Theodore spent his career as a shipyard mechanic at Bethlehem Steel, and he passed away in August of 1977. He was 57 years and 3 months old, and that was his real age. 
Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Have you got what you'd call a sensitive stomach? Does careless eating, over-smoking, or nervous strain sometimes bring on acid indigestion with its heartburn and heaviness? Then you ought to try Tums. At the first hint of acid distress, slip one or two Tums in your mouth, the same as you would candy mint. Almost instantly, Tums neutralize the excess acid, bring you sweet, grateful relief. You see, you don't over-alkalize when you take Tums. You don't risk acid rebound. Tums contain no bicarbonate of soda, no water-soluble alkalize, absolutely none. So never over-alkalize, always neutralize excess acidity with Tums. Handy to take? Oh, you bet. No mixing or stirring, no water needed. Get yourself some Tums this very night. Then do as millions do. Night and day, at home or away, always carry Tums. Still only 10 cents a roll, free roll package a quarter, all drugstores. Ask for Tums. T-U-M-S. Tums for the tummy. That commercial for Tums is from the May 4th, 1948 episode of the radio program A Date with Judy. This particular episode was titled Playing Hooky. Let me give you a little bit on the history of Tums. Turns out that Tums was invented by St. Louis pharmacist Jim Howe as a remedy for his wife's indigestion. She stored the tablets in a mason jar in their home. Then, several months later, while the couple was away on a cruise, his wife shared some of the tablets with other passengers and they loved them. Realizing that he had a potentially hit product on his hands, Mr. Howe formed the Lewis Howe Company. Tums were first sold commercially in 1930, and today the brand is owned by GlaxoSmithKline. The product has an incredibly simple formulation. It's basically sugar and calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate is the same stuff that seashells, eggshells, and corals are made of, so it's totally safe. 
During the manufacturing process, these two ingredients are mixed with starch, water, and some flavoring before being dried and compressed into those familiar tablets. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what to call News of the Weird Past. And all of today's stories involve strange cases that have appeared before the courts. So let's start with this one. The details of a very unusual will was revealed by Judge Wilhelm as part of a suit before the court in Pottsville, Pennsylvania on July 8th of 1916. When the mother of four middle-aged women named Bertha, Caroline, Louisa, and Sarah Yasel passed on, she left an estate of $70,000, which is about $920,000 today, and that was to be split among the four daughters. The only stipulation was that none of the women could ever marry or they would forfeit their share of the estate. But that was not what was being challenged here. You see, all of the women have remained unmarried up until this point. But daughter Bertha had passed on and mom left nothing to her two sons, so they were before the court seeking to claim her share. Next up is a story that occurred on June 3rd of 1954 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In a game between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Milwaukee Braves, an umpire threw the legendary Jackie Robinson out of the game after Robinson argued over what he considered to be a bad call. Robinson walked off the field and threw his bat towards the dugout. The bat flew a bit too high and bounced off the top of the dugout and into the crowd, hitting three spectators in the head. Two of the fans, Mr. and Mrs. Peter Walensky, threatened a lawsuit. Robinson was very apologetic and explained, quote, when I threw the bat underhanded towards the dugout, I held it a second too long and it went too high and bounced into the stands. He added, I didn't mean to throw the bat into the stands. Hell, I'd be crazy to do that. As you'd expect, the case ended up in court. The couple filed a $40,000 suit, which is about $320,000 today, against Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mr. Walensky claimed to suffer from a brain concussion and headaches. Both he and his wife were suffering from severe nervous shock. Yeah, right. So severe were their injuries that the case was ultimately settled out of court for a reported $300 each. And our last story for today is dated September 9th of 1978, when it's reported that New Canaan, Connecticut resident Charles R. Bach had won a $100,000 settlement from a minibike accident. He claimed that while riding the minibike in Stoddard, New Hampshire seven years prior, a dog named King started barking and scared him so much that he took a fall. He suffered a fractured vertebrae that had to be removed. King's owner, Howard M. Klebanoff, said that the dog had been locked inside his vacation home, but his brother-in-law, quote, felt sorry for the dog and let him out. Next thing you know, King is running down the road barking at Mr. Bach. The insurance company settled the case out of court. As for King, he died several years prior. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked what was the name of the person employed to wake up people each morning. And your choices were 1. A bell donger, 
two a day starter, three a knocker upper, four a night chaser, or five a rooster riser. Now, oddly, the first person that I asked this question to knew the answer without me ever offering a single hint. So, did you know it also? The answer was choice number three, a knocker-upper. Knocker-uppers were quite common during the Industrial Revolution, with most of them working in England and in Ireland. A knocker-upper or knocker-up could either be self-employed or hired by a factory to make sure that all their employees got to work on time. That was very important. Typically, a knocker-upper would use a long stick and just tap it against the window of the person they were trying to wake up. Once awake, the person would go to the window and signal to the knocker-upper that he or she was out of bed. I encourage you to check out YouTube because there are a couple of videos on there on how this was actually done. By the 1920s, the job was obsolete and it was replaced by technology that was both cheaper and more reliable. I think they call it an alarm clock. I hope you enjoyed today's story on Baltimore's buried treasure as well as all the support materials that went with that. I do apologize if I sound a little bit nasal. I am getting over a minor cold. It's just one of the pleasures of being a school teacher. You just get one illness after another. I also apologize. A little bit of humming here and there through the recording. And I'm using a new computer with a new setup and I can't figure out what's causing it. I'll work on it and hopefully it'll be solved by the next podcast. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. I encourage you to go to Facebook. That's www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's all one word, useless information podcast, and you'll find support materials and some comments on this podcast. If you'd like to contact me, you can do that through Facebook, or you can email me at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name, or you can visit my website at uselessinformation.org. As always, I thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day, there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.